Hello, horror fans. Welcome back to March Mad Men. It's the podcast determined to decide what is the greatest slasher movie ever made. You are joining an episode already in progress. Hot tension just bested blood rage, and there are two more matchups ahead. It's The Burning versus Stage Fright, and Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, facing off with Final Girls. Enjoy. Hey guys, uh, before we talk about our next pairing, I want to introduce you to the beer that I'm drinking. I, I think you should really check it out. It's, it's, it's from a little San Diego brewery called Pizza Port, and it's, it's, it's called Share the Ride. And I, I want to make you guys aware of it, because I, I think it's really special. <laughs> That's an inside joke. That's an inside joke to anyone who's listened to more than a few of these episodes. Because, of course, Rich is Mr. Pizza Port. <laughs> I'm going to go get a Pizza Port right now. Outstanding, as well you should. All right, our next matchup is in the old school regional. These are seminal films, not really known for franchises, even if they spawned a sequel or two. They're definitely not new or postmodern or meta. They're relatively old-fashioned and traditional in some key ways, even if, hopefully, they are weird and distinctive in some way. Tonight, The Burning and number 8 seed faces its, its peer, Stage Fright, number 9. These are, uh, these are two equally matched films, so nobody knows how the coin will flip. Uh, I don't even have a, a really strong handle on this, so I think the conversation is going to determine where I cast my vote, so this should be interesting. The Burning was directed by Tony Malum. It came out in 1981. The tagline was, Gather Around the Campfire to Die. <laughs> It's loosely based on an urban legend from New York State. Of course, Cropsey. Uh, many of us, our listeners, will probably be familiar with Cropsey. The logline here is that a former summer camp caretaker was horribly burned from a prank gone wrong and now lurks around the upstate New York summer camp, bent on killing the teenagers responsible for his disfigurement. Thank you, IMDb. I think this movie is probably best known for the people involved rather than any particularly indelible imagery or plot elements. Though from time to time, I do see that figure with the shears poised to stab down from above in various places. I think it's a semi-iconic image of slasher movies. And there's also a canoe sequence in this movie that really wowed me in terms of its timing, shock, and impact. But for most people, this movie is notable for the first screen credits of a very young Jason Alexander, Fisher Stevens, and a frankly unrecognizable Holly Hunter. Or perhaps the fact that it was written by a guy named Bob Weinstein as developed from an idea by his brother, Harvey Weinstein. Horrific, I know. The IMDb trivia on the film includes this nugget that Tom, actually maybe this was from Wikipedia, in any case, Tom Savini turned down Friday the 13th Part 2 because he preferred this movie's script to that one. Okay, Tom. Not sure I'm with you on that one. 
also this movie uh has various cuts and uncut versions floating around it was caught up in the video nasties in the uk in the 80s you never know which one you're gonna get it faced fierce competition at the box office when it was released as there were i'm not joking literally five or six other slasher movies in theaters at the same time to put that to uh, underscore that point friday the 13th part two was out and i think it was second at the box office number one at the box office was happy birthday to me another slasher movie which some people including uh my friend and listener Luke Rooney uh, loves that film, and maybe he'll be on to do a slasher roundtable with us at some point. But in any event, this movie did not do well. And I can understand why. I think it starts strong. I really like the opening sequence with Cropsey's origin story. I think it compares favorably to the very similar open in Terror Train. I also like the buildup of his mythology from there. Uh, there's this unprofessional nurse at the hospital who uses this terribly burned man to freak out his coworkers. I like that. I like the scene with the prostitute that follows Cropsey's uh, release from the hospital. And of course, the aforementioned canoe sequence. So it has its highlights. But ultimately, I think this movie is mostly here because of its reputation and the pedigree of the people involved. I don't have, if you'll forgive the pun, a burning desire to study this film in detail. Well, good, John. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the burning, but up against it is a worthy adversary. Vic, tell us about Stage Fright. You know, John, I think Stage Fright is a worthy adversary. I'm going to say from 1987, directed by an Italian director named uh, Michel Suaki. I'm going to I'm going to take a swing at that. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Miguel Miguel Suave. But to be fair, I only know that because I tried to book him for a film oh. festival that I was running or a horror movie night of a film festival that I was running. So, um I had to, you know, talk to his people on the phone. But yeah, it's actually pronounced Miguel Suave. Gotcha. Also, I, I had a, a typo there in my notes, so uh, let's just let's just sail right past that. <laughs> of course. Uh, and uh, now that we're off to this long start, but yes, 1987 film uh, logline is a a troupe of actors rehearsing a play about a slasher in a really weird bird mask wind up locked in the theater with a slasher in a really weird bird mask. All right, so I found this to be an oddly art housey take on the slasher. I actually found myself thinking more than once while watching this about Darren Aronofsky's uh, Black Swan, another theater set sort of psychological thriller with a lot of feathers and bird imagery as well. But it is sort of it's it's inventively shot. Uh, there's there's a lot of or at least there's more than the usual amount of attention paid to the characters and the setup. Uh, I mentioned when we were talking about previous films how I feel like the setting is taking on more importance here than it did certainly with haunted house films, but in a lot of other films because so much of the stories and the and the the way the stories play out is similar. So the world in which it's taking place takes on this added importance, and this film feels very authentically uh, grounded in the theater. This seems like it was written by people who knew about life in a theater and understood the kind of conversations that take place between actors and their costume designers and that sort of thing. Uh, so that all gives it a, a, a really 
interesting, authentic feel. You know, the, the actors are worried about losing their jobs. The megalomaniacal director is a bit of a cliche, but there's something believable about everyone doing everything they can just to get noticed in this sort of tiny play in this tiny town. So it makes sense that he would try to take advantage of a crew member's death to drum up publicity for the show. I also really love there's a, a scene speaking a, a bit of Black Swan. There's a scene where the killer murders a girl on stage as part of the rehearsal, which I just think is uh, a really fascinating <laughs> thing that you don't usually see in movies like this. As I mentioned, the characters have some some depth and attention paid to them. It's not terribly original or earth shattering, but it's competent. There's a lot of attention to details, keeping track of the characters, where they are in the space. Uh, the the props, all that sort of stuff. That's the kind of thing that I pride myself on as a writer when I'm tackling a project. And so it really makes me happy when I'm watching a movie and and see that the the director and the and the writers and everyone are are really taking care to make sure that they know where everything is. But really, the thing that sets this movie apart is that bird mask. It is so fucking weird. it's it feels too far out there sometimes to be really scary. But boy, it really stands out as something memorable. Uh, I, I enjoyed this movie. I've now seen it twice, and uh, the second time it, it really held up. Well, I didn't get Miguel e. Suave uh, for that film festival, but I booked the film, and it played on like a Wednesday night, and like 12 people came. But I watched it, and uh, it made an impression on me then, and I, do, I even kind of love it more now. So I, I'm with you, Vic. The, I, the other thing that's sort of worth noting about this is outside of that, there's not much worth noting. Like uh, the, I couldn't find any box office information on it. There's very few critical reviews of it. I mean, you know, there's a, a little sort of retroactive stuff, but like at the time, it doesn't seem like this made much of an impression on anybody. So I'm kind of impressed that it's that it's lived on uh, as much as it has. This was not a difficult film to find. You know, I didn't do a lot of like deep research into this film. And so I don't know if anyone knows what the pedigree of it is that I thought I was getting into an Italian film and it clearly is an Italian made film, but it's an American Italian made film, at least in terms of like some of the actors are definitely are, are American and some of them are, are, are clearly Italian. Just look at the teeth. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm with you. Like, I thought I thought that one of the things that really worked for this movie for me was that this was like the equivalent of like watching like a close up magic show. Like the the fact that they put the killer in such proximity and that it's essentially a lock in. Like this is, I mean, I, I guess you could say like something is similar with like Black Christmas. Although in Black Christmas, they're not aware of it. This is a a case where everyone knows the killer is 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 there. And they are all trapped with the killer and trying to, to to cope with that fact. And you know, I didn't think of it at the time, but I think you you really make a very good point. Like that is something that is not easy in filmmaking to really track the motions of people and like to under to feel like you have a sense of like the geography of the space that they're in. And you really do in this movie. I'll, I'll say for like for me, like virtually no one was likable in this film. Uh, you know, like our our, our our final girl like ends up being, I, I think like redeems herself just for like sheer tenacity, but, uh, but not a whole lot of the other characters like have a lot of redeemable qualities. And, and I actually feel like the kills are pretty weak until you hit like the midway mark. Um, and then they really ratchet them up, like starting with a, a pretty good, like power drill murder. And from there on out, it's like, okay, yes, this is, this is certainly like 
a, a slasher film. This is another movie where it's tough not to talk about the ending because for me, I'd say that the first act I was not on board and like the second act I got interested. And by the end of the third act, I was sold uh, to me, like the, the entire, cl- the entire prolonged climax of this film is one of my favorite uh, that I've seen so far. It's just patient. Like, as you said, like it, it is art house filmmaking and it gives you a, a nice, quiet, ponderous moment to think about what you're watching and what this entire crazy genre means. Loved it. I hope that we get a chance to talk about it in more detail uh, later. But I'll also say this thing has got a, definitely a few soft spots, especially towards the front. Well, Michele, Michele, John, am I saying that correctly? I, I, I heard, I was told Miguele. I know that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like, it sounds like a G. Fair enough. Miguele um, is a, a protege of Dario Argento, and Argento wrote several of his subsequent films. He still seems to still be working as a director in Italy. It doesn't seem like he made it big uh, over here in the U.S., although he did do Cemetery Man with... Mm-hmm. Yes, with uh, Rupert with, Everett, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which has certainly found a, a cult audience uh, for itself as well. Um, I do also want to point out because for some reason in this in this uh, subgenre more than any other, I'm really starting to see connections. Again, I feel like uh, Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with the map and all the strings tied together. And uh, it's probably actually a little bit like what I look like now. But um, this... <laughs> You're not this wrong, film, Vic. <laughs> this film and The Burning and <clears throat> Peeping Tom all open with the killer murdering a prostitute. Well, technically, the burning doesn't open with it, uh, but Cropsey's first kill is a a prostitute murder. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I'm going to say I watched that scene uh, side by side today with the opening scene from Peeping Tom. And because of the Weinstein's involvement in the burning, I'm going to say that that is almost certainly a direct homage to Peeping Tom. They are very similar in terms of the lighting and uh, the the content, the way everything everything rolls out. Uh, so, John, you were questioning the uh, presence of Peeping Tom in this competition. I would like to point out that here we are in episode two, uh, and here we have two films that I think have at least some vague, loose connection to it. Uh, Vic, I'm also questioning the role of Peeping Tom in this competition. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to that because it's in the competition. But dead uh, hookers, dead hookers, right? Yeah, that's, just one, that's what's one, here. one one dead hooker does not a slasher make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I see the you know the the prototypical DNA that uh, that that movie brings to the table, but uh, that's a conversation for another time. The Weinstein brothers apparently were very much inspired by you know clearly Halloween and Texas Chainsaw. I did find it interesting. They started developing this project before Friday the 13th part one, but uh, yeah, they were, they were casting a wide net. I'm sure as far as their influences. I mean, I think if we're looking at ways to determine which of these movies are better, looking at the quality of act three is a pretty easy way to differentiate them because in my first view, a few months ago, the, the burning was heading for a higher seed until act three which I think is kind of a muddle. It doesn't really work for me on any level. 
And I found it to be a disappointing end to an otherwise very solid slasher movie. It, it seemed to me like these folks couldn't stage anything like a traditional action suspense set piece, not at the pro level anyway. Without getting into spoilers, the business with the flamethrower and hero armor and how the movie treats its villain is just kind of lame at the end of the day. Whereas Stage Fright, it's stylish, it's surreal, it's strange and idiosyncratic in the way of a good music video from the period. It has a great killer. The owl head mask is, as we've all agreed, uniquely unsettling. Uh, there's professionally staged stock fight and kill sequences from start to finish that do not lack for gruesome impact. Yeah, a lot of the characters are annoying. It is the kind of horror movie where you're mostly rooting for people to get killed rather than to stay alive. This movie does not make musical theater people look good. And it does have some so bad it's good qualities, as Italian horror often does. For instance, the Willie character at the end repeating right in between the eyes over and over and over. That definitely it's very very weird. Yeah, yes. it was so weird. Well, not not unlike the ending of Blood Rage with the with the yes. Todd going, I'm Todd. I'm Todd. I'm Todd. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, the the mantra like insistence on repetition of of dialogue. It certainly is its own conversation. But for my money, I could see digging our teeth into stage fright a little more than I could see us digging into the burning. And uh, I, 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 that would be a worthwhile endeavor that I, I'm looking forward to. I, I will throw out a couple things about the, the burning that I want to get in. Although first, I want to tell you guys about this, um, this great brewery that, uh, that I've been following. They're called, they're down from San Diego. They're called Pizza Port. Huh. Um, this Weird. Is a, this is a dream trip. Oh, uh, okay. Courtesy uh, for, given to me my, by, for my birthday from, uh, from Vic. So, uh, so cheers. Thank so you very it, much, Vic. It's like pizza, like the food, and like a port, like where like ships sail in and out of there? Yeah, huh. they, they, they do have pizza there. But yeah. really, it's the it's the beer that gets you. It's the beer that brings you back. So it's you a brewery. Yeah, I should pizza port, huh? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was, Rich, I was I was all set to when you were saying pizza port, like we'd never heard it before, and I was gonna be like, huh? I've never heard of it. Are they new? But then you but then you told everyone that I gave you the beer, and I was like, well, shit, that's that it. Yeah. Well, sorry to ruin that for you, Vic. Yeah. Thanks, Rich. Uh, <laughs> hey, the burning has a few. Th- has a few things I think are notable. One, like the the effects in it are for that for that era, are pretty damn good. They're very reminiscent of Friday the Thirteenth Part One, which makes sense, um, since that was also Savini. Um, yep. You know, they they have a certain sort of like pla- like stretchy, plasticky quality to like the way that the, the skin breaks open. <laughs> right. um, that, that, that that's kind of fun. This movie has got something going for it, just in the number of sheer bodies. I can't think of another movie that has this size of a cast. There are so many teenagers in this film. It's insane. Like the softball game and the swimming scenes, there are just tons and tons and tons of them. Um, so I assume that they were just like, you know, they were just like boating these kids in and then, and then paying them basically nothing. And I, I will say that the one of the side effects of that is that it creates a weirdly convincing environment 
because everyone seems like they're having a pretty good time. You know, you mentioned like Jason Alexander and like Fisher Stevens, like they, they both kind of get these like moments to like shine. Like it's not just like, I mean, Holly Hunter kind of just like appears, but the, the others like actually get a chance to like make a mark, like their personality kind of shines through and you can see like the, the, the character actors that they would eventually become. You know, I, I think that there's there's a lot to be said for that. Like this feels like felt like a very natural, like breathing environment. And I liked being on the journey along with these kids. Like there's there's something to the you know, they get they get stranded at some point mm-hmm. um, and they're they're they're, they're downriver and separate from the other campers. And like there's almost like a stand by me kind of quality to like these like kids just sort of like traversing along, trying to deal with like a difficult situation um, you know, there's not a whole lot of nuance their relationships, but there are relationships, which is more than you can say for, you know, for for a lot of these movies. And Jason Alexander um, has such a Jason Alexander has such a like breezy, amiable, relaxed quality. It, it's 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 striking. Yeah, like there's nothing sort of overly. Uh, you, you know, he's over deciding his choices as an actor. Just yeah, he feels just completely comfortable in front of the camera in a way that young actors normally don't. And the the, the kills. One one other thing I want to mention about the kills. I love how many of them are in like broad daylight. Mm-hmm. Also, this movie is not shy with its uh, gratuitous nudity. It's it it's DNA. Like this is this is a a move that is like is designing itself for like drive-in theaters and late night screenings and Cropsey's makeup is pretty good like his mm-hmm. I actually think his face when they reveal it and also that like that ugly worm filled skull that they scare him with at the beginning yeah it's great um, like just some really really nice like I mean like exceptional for the genre like prosthetic uh, touches like there's some cool stuff in here Tom Savini has said that that Cropsey makeup was inspired by a burnt beggar that he saw in his childhood. Apparently, a lot of Tom Savini's great makeup effects were inspired by things that he he saw in real life, which makes a lot of sense that made a big impression on him. Including, by the way, Jason, as seen at the end of Friday the 13th Part 1, was based on uh, a kid in his neighborhood that had some deformities. This, this sounds like Tom Savini was going around burning homeless people and then recreating their makeup in movies later. <laughs> I, I wonder how long he had to stare at somebody to, like, you know, get the makeup li- right later. Um, I doubt it was a passing glance. I, I bet he was a little creepy looking at these people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I am in honor of Cropsey. Uh, I'm going to open a uh, a Backwoods Bastard. Oh, nice. Very nice. Backwoods Bastard. Yeah, that is nothing says slasher like Backwoods Bastard. Back for two episodes in a row there, Vic. Indeed. Well, mm-hmm. I uh, uh, it's the same four-pack, John. There is, let's see, there's one thing that I want to mention about the burning, uh, and I'm probably glad I have a beer for this, but I, I this really jumped out at me watching it. I think... I read uh, a bit about this film in Down and Dirty Pictures, the Peter Biskind uh, book about the 90s film movement had a lot to do with Miramax, Bob and Harvey Weinstein, how they got started. This was one of their first pictures. Uh, Harvey's credited as a producer as opposed to an executive producer. My impression is that he was very hands-on during the making of this and that he was something of a tyrant. 
uh, you'll be shocked to, to, to hear uh, that the, none of what I heard about that was very pleasant. But what really jumped out at me in this is there are a number of exchanges between men attempting to somewhat yes. seduce women uh, and that the women then sort of retreat and say no. And I, 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 I it's not Sally, um, Karen. Uh, Karen then goes to one of the counselors and is like, ah, Eddie, he's being so aggressive and I don't know. And she's like, well, let me kick him off the thing. And she's like, well, but I don't know. I kind of like it. And it was like, it, 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 something similar happens with Glazer and Sally later on to see it repeated like that. And this idea that these guys were being so sleazy and aggressive, but that privately the women were saying that they actually kind of liked it. And of course they both wind up having sex with those guys. It felt gross. Like knowing what I know now about Harvey Weinstein, who was obviously had his, uh, his, his disgusting fingerprints all over this film. Uh, and that Bob Weinstein co-wrote the screenplay. I, I felt really gross at the end of this with all that sort of, sort of hovering around it. Um, and, and I would be delighted to not watch this film again. Well, really quickly, two things. One, uh, one of the accusers of Harvey Weinstein does date back to this film and, and had the, the basic normal rap that a lot of women would bring to the table was that, you know, he comes out in a towel and he asks for a massage or whatever. So that was happening at this time as well. I was I agree with you in the sense that I was very keenly aware watching this movie of this dynamic that you're referring to but I wouldn't say it's as as black and white as you're making it. I think that the rapisty guy in this there's one character specifically who's like always angry that this woman is not quote unquote putting out for him. I don't doesn't matter to me what the character's name is or whatever. But I didn't think the film necessarily was in his corner at all. And I, I certainly didn't think it made it seem like he was attractive or the woman was attracted to him and just playing games or being coy or whatever. I think it was like the, the movie depicts it as really obnoxious asshole behavior and uh, he gets killed. So I, I didn't read it as like, uh, you know, sympathy for the devil here, you know, where it's all, um, we're, we're supposed to be, you know, rooting for or on the side of the, uh, sexually aggressive, angry man. Who's pissed at these women who are cock teases. I didn't think it was that, um, blatant. I thought it was, there was actually a pretty strong undercurrent of this guy is fucking obnoxious and he gets what he deserves. Yeah. But she does wind up skinny dipping with him. Yeah, but then he tries to rape her, she leaves, he's super pissed, and he gets murdered. Am I wrong? No, but I'm just saying that it was the, the conversation. That, what really struck me is the conversation, because that's the Karen and Eddie dynamic. Those are the characters that we're talking about. What struck me is that after she has that, again, that angry, like, oh, why won't you put out conversation with her? She goes to the counselor, and the head counselor, and the head counselor offers to take him off the trip. And she says, no, because I think I kind of like it. Like that, that to me, that is what Harvey Weinstein thought every woman he was that aggressive with was saying in private. That might be, that might be a, a, a bit strong, but that was my impression. That was, that was what floated through my head when I was watching it. And it just felt really, it felt really gross. I just want to say like, as long as we're talking about 
I mean, this is a battle royale between two films. So, like, let's, like, validate this argument. I mean, do you feel like stage fright is necessarily treating people any better? It wasn't made by one of the most prolific rapists in <laughs> Hollywood history. Fair point. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I don't want to necessarily say that, uh, yeah, that stage fright is a, um, a, a feminist treatise or, so, treatise or something. But nonetheless, let's... Let, let, definitely let, not. <laughs> no, clearly, clearly no. But we have to pick, and you know we we can't talk about this forever. So, uh, Rich, I feel like you should kick us off here. What movie does ha, has your vote officially? Now that we've talked this out, I'm going stage fright. I, I forgot to mention I also find the burning to be tremendously boring. Stage fright for my vote. All right, and Vic, uh, ditto. Obviously, stage fright. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would have gone with Stage Fright as well. So uh, it's a clean sweep. It's not to say that, look, I think all 64 of these movies, you know, deserve, they wouldn't be, we wouldn't have put them in the tournament if you couldn't have a solid hour or two of interesting conversation about them. I think that The Burning, you know, does merit more discussion than we're going to give it. But, uh, you know, folks, like... Our life on uh, our time on Earth is is short, so we got to move on and say goodbye to it, and it's on to the next matchup. And I think we made the right choice. So the next, the next regional, the next section of our tournament is the meta section, and we have two more movies from that regional. This one can be defined as films that are playing with subgenre conventions, either overtly or subtly. Horror comedies would often fit in here because they're having fun with genre tropes. And uh, in some way, they're self-aware of the fact that slasher movies exist. It would be usually true about all these films. Tonight, we're dealing with a five seed and a 12 seed. The favorite is Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, and it's facing Final Girls, which is the 12 seed. This is our last matchup of the evening. I'm uh, excited to talk about this. I think this could be a divisive conversation. Vic, tell us about Behind the Mask. All right. Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. I uh, I like this movie. It was it came out in 2006. It was directed by a guy named, a guy named Scott Glosserman. John, do you want to do you want to correct my pronunciation there? Is it is it pronounced you you nailed it, buddy. But I, I mean, I would put a little emphasis a little emphasis on the on the you. Some Glosterman. No, no, just there is no you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Vic. Maybe you want to tell us the name of the lead actress. <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm not going to try it. Um, so <laughs> it's okay. not Linnea Quigley. <laughs> not in this one. <laughs> you guys, you guys suck. I'm going home. Uh, <laughs> all right, so 2006, directed by Scott Klosterman. No, Glosserman. Uh, Logline, which I love, uh, just conceptually, right? In a world where Freddie, Jason, and Michael are real, a rural weirdo lets a documentary crew follow him as he attempts to join their ranks. Um, and that's really it. This is like half found footage, half uh, or maybe two-thirds found footage, one-third sort of traditionally shot horror film. 
There's a lot going on in this one. I think Glosserman really wants to have his cake and eat it too. Uh, I think the film attempts to be a, a witty meta deconstruction of slasher films and also a slasher film. Now, the first part of that is pretty impressive. And while laughing at the tropiness of slashers is nothing particularly new, seeing it from the killer's perspective is kind of a novel take. Uh, I particularly love Leslie complaining about all the cardio he has to do so that he can keep up with the teenagers that are running while he only has to walk. Um, so that's sort of a, a funny knowing nod to something that we all laugh about in in uh, these these slasher films. But more than that, I think there's this really uh, provocative transition in the documentary crew themselves that are following them as they move from being sort of passive bemused spectators, again, of this rural weirdo to sort of increasingly horrified participants. I think that that perspective is really a reflection on slasher film fans as a whole. We take this giddy pleasure in watching some version of this story play out over and over and over again, the bloodier and more violent, the better. But what is it about this particular story, the killer, the stalking, the sex, the blood, the final girl, that brings us back over and over and over again in the same way that Taylor can't bring herself to turn off the cameras no matter how real this story starts to get? But with all that said, the, uh, the last third of this film transitions into a painfully traditional and poorly executed slasher film that, for me, crushes almost everything I enjoyed about the first two thirds, especially the camera work. Uh, like it's not like an homage to bad slasher films, bad. It doesn't look like, uh, even, you know, a, a blood rage or something. It's just bad. It just, it looks like cheap video. It's, it's I, it really, really took me out of the movie. I overall, I would just say behind the mask, I think has more, stimulating things to say about the genre than a lot of other films in this this meta subcategory. But as a horror film, even though it's got plenty of blood and sex and, and interesting ideas, it's, geez, as a horror film, it's not very good. So all of that makes this a really hard movie to quantify because there's a lot of really good things and there's a really clear dividing line at which there becomes a lot of really bad things. Uh, so hopefully that at least makes it a good movie to discuss. What do you guys think? I think that if the issue that you get hung up on is how good of a tried and true horror film it is, it's going to be an interesting conversation when you put it up against their other candidate, Final Girls. Final Girls was directed by uh, Todd Strauss Schulson. Uh, it was released in 2015. Um, it stars uh, Taisa Farmiga. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to try it, Vic. Um, and <laughs> Rich, and that was Mayla. brutal. <laughs> Tesa Farmiga. <laughs> and and Malin Ackerman. Uh, and by the way, that is Farmiga of the of the Farmiga uh, clan of the, of the Farmiga clan <laughs> of the of the conjuring Farmigas. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it has some supporting work from a real who's who of like second lineup mid-aughts comedy cast members. Totally. Um, including Adam Adam Devine, Thomas Middleditch, and uh, Alia Shawkat. This is probably this is, one of the best casts of the whole tournament, at least in terms of comedy, right? I mean... I, that, I, I agree, yeah. yeah. I, I, and, and I will say, like, I, I think that they're, like, maybe a little wasted. Yeah. Um, 
all of them, especially Middle Ditch, I feel like is like given like uh, I, I, who I who I love in some stuff and don't love in others. I I wouldn't say I love him in this. Like I feel like he's a he's a little flat here. Yeah. Um, this is definitely like a more heartfelt homage to the slasher genre. Uh, certainly more so than Behind the the Mask. Uh, it's the story of a teen girl named Max whose mother passes away in a car accident. And years later, she goes to a double feature of the fictional slasher film Camp Bloodbath, which was the high point of her late mother's acting career. She and her friends are sucked into the film via movie magic, and they navigate the classic horror tropes and try to keep, try to keep the fictional characters of Camp Bloodbath from having sex in order to combat Jason Voorhees' stand-in, Billy Murphy. This film got a pretty lukewarm reception um, when it got released. Uh, it, it did most of its business from on-demand. And from what I can tell in my research, it didn't fully make back its modest like $4.5 budget in terms of release, which is probably why it never got a sequel, despite the fact that they were kind of beating that drum um, when it came out. I mean, this is a very normie-friendly uh, movie. It's PG-13. The director shows a taste for meta mashups more than he does horror. His next film was a, a movie called Isn't It Romantic, which my wife watched and I witnessed, um, which is basically just final girls, but it's romantic comedies. Um, a woman gets sucked into a romantic comedy and has to sort of like live out the tropes and like deal with all the limitations of being trapped within, within a film. You know, and I think as a result, it doesn't always stick the gags in a few different places. Like I mentioned, the, the cast feeling like a little bit wasted. I definitely always feel let down by the killer's mask. I don't know why that one always stands out to me, but it feels like a real misfire on this movie. But that said, I think it gets a lot of things right. There's the literally forced backstory, the bizarre sexual compulsion of the of the characters in the in the film um, that has to be curtailed by our by our protagonists. There's the final girl who shows up and then doesn't make it all that far. Like it all feels very true to like Friday the 13th and the burning and the and the whole summer camp slasher genre. In terms of the meta genre, I think what really sets it apart here are the clever physical interactions with celluloid and the film watching experience. I mean, it's not exactly last action hero, but like the characters are assaulted by a flashback transition. They're hindered by slow motion. There's titles that get hit by cars. And at one point, they're actually forced to live through the credits and an MPAA rating. You know, but beyond all these thoughtful gags, like the thing that always gets me about this movie is the emotional story of it. I mean, an emotional story in like in of all things in a slasher movie is this protagonist trying to reconnect with her mother through a filmed memory and ultimately connecting and finding some closure at the end. I mean, I thought that the acting between uh, Taisa Farmiga, did I even say that the right, the same, I don't even know if I said it. <laughs> it's not, ah! it's not Taisa Farmiga. <laughs> it wasn't even close, dude. <laughs> Uh, Rich, I just want to say thank you, dude. You, you've really you've taken the load off. Yeah. I oh my god. How do you say it? Tessa Farmiga. Whatever. It's pronounced Christine. Rich. <laughs> Christine. All right. I thought the acting between Tessa Farmiga and Malin Ackerman was actually spot on and gave this thing like a rare and genuine emotional arc 
certainly more so than what I thought I saw in Behind the Mask. At the end of the day, like I'd, I'd write this thing off as being essentially like a good Christmas movie. It's kind of sappy. It's a little shoddy. But at the end of the day, it presses the right buttons to make me return to it regularly. And like most Christmas movies, I do wish it took its bloodshed a little more seriously. Wow. I think you just absolutely put your finger on the pivot point if you like this movie or not. If you want the Hallmark version of a slasher movie, this is your movie. If you don't, well, you're going to be shit out of luck. (laughs) If you don't, Behind the Mask is also not your movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess like that, that was the thing with Behind the Mask is I, I was actually really looking forward to Behind the Mask. I had not seen it before. I was excited for it and excited for something that really like delivered the goods. You know, I was a big fan of Man Bites Dog, the serial killer mockumentary film yeah. that came out in the, the late 90s. And I'd heard that Behind the Mask was like the was like the Man Bites Dog of, of slasher films. And I got to admit, like, I was pretty disappointed. I did not care for uh, Nathan Basil, if that's his name, um, as Leslie Vernon. It's Nathan Basil. (laughs) (laughs) I just found him to be such, like, a douchey bro that I, I mean, I just didn't, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't relate to the guy. I didn't care about him. I didn't find him especially funny. It seemed like a movie that was, like, really proud of itself. I did think that the the lead actress was was great. I thought that like the sort of that exuberance and the reservation and, and Vic, you were talking about like that that balance that she has of of like she sort of just like gets sucked into it like right off the bat and then like the the way that she has to to temper out how she gradually becomes like less and less comfortable with it. I actually thought that she handled that really well. But he was pretty weak, and I thought that the the horror scenes in Behind the Mask reminded me of the things I didn't like about the Hatchet films, mostly in terms of, like, technical quality and just its sort of smugness. Um, but, you know, I agree that it's it's breaking down the horror mechanics is spot on. It's more of a horror film than Final Girls is, for sure. I also think it was one of my favorite Robert England cameos. Rich, it's yeah. so funny that you mentioned the Hatchet films because one of the notes I have is that the way this film handles its horror nerddom with Robert Robert England and um, oh gosh, what's her face that played Tangia in uh, Tangina in oh uh, uh, Zelda Rubenstein Zelda Rubenstein yeah, yeah the, the way they handled those cameos and the references to Friday the Thirteenth and a Nightmare on Elm Street and stuff. That was the way to do like horror nerd references and like little inside jokes for for the people who who really know what they're what they're doing for us. Right. Hatchet was wrong. I was like, you know, it doesn't have Tom Holland as uh, Eugene, the serial killer buddy. Now you're talking about Hatchet 2 right now. Like uh, Hatchet 1 we haven't dealt with yet. I assume you're talking about Hatchet 2 because that's what Tom Holland was in. You're right. Obviously. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thanks. You don't, you don't want me. You don't want me in, in advance talking shit about Hatchet. I'll keep that to myself. Oh um, well, you're uh, spoiler. I guess you hate Hatchet One too, huh? All right, great. I I I, I will eviscerate it. <laughs> no, I actually I don't hate Hatchet. I don't want to get too oh, far. So I don't oh, want to get too far into it. You're okay, right. Good. Specifically Hatchet Two because we spoke about that, right. and I was saying how I didn't like the way that they handled the the Cameos. horror references and the horror the, the sort of. Little Easter eggs for horror fans, I thought, were were handled poorly. This film, I feel like, handles them very well. 
But I also I liked uh, Nathan Basil. I'm gonna say, yeah. Um, I, I actually I liked his performance. I thought he was good. I agree. I think a lot of the performances were good. Uh, Robert England included. I think this is a really perfect pairing. I mean, not a lot of planning went into what films go up against each other because you know we have 16 movies. They're all basically ranked on their merits, and hopefully you get some interesting matchups. But this is a very well-tailored matchup because these films are similar in a lot of ways in what they're doing. Um, I I think this movie uh, behind the mask I'm talking about is a lot of fun and it actually grew on me the second time I saw it for this podcast. Uh, I love Leslie Vernon, Nathan Basil's whole energy as it walks the line between this entirely reasonable, affable charm and this driven type A commitment to his vision that you know from the beginning is not to be fucked with. It's quite some time before you realize which one of those dueling energies is going to be dominant, but you can guess which one is when push comes to shove. And I think that pays off at the end. The movie has a sly wit that I think is mostly pretty restrained, for the most part, throughout the film and rooted in the characters, it's not a ha-ha, look-at-this-kooky-gag approach that would tilt the film into horror comedy. I don't think it entirely ever makes that move, which I like. Even though you have to kind of know where the movie is going narratively right from the start, I think the third act throws several nice little curveballs at us to keep us off balance, personally. I, I kind of disagree with Vic about act three here. Um, we can get into nitty gritty of staging of horror sequences and everything. And I'm not going to say it's Texas chainsaw massacre, but, uh, generally speaking, it worked for me. I don't know how truly deep the film is, but I think it, it does merit final examination, uh, further examination for sure. And it, there's a great use of talking head psycho killer over the closing credits. As for final girls, <laughs> I really don't like Final Girls. <laughs> I feel like I've I've seen it twice now, and I think I actually liked it less when I watched it the second time for our show. I feel like it's the most tame, sappy, and toothless take on its premise that you could use, that you could implement to um, execute that premise. It's like the Disney version of a slasher parody. It's complete with a sweet mother-daughter relationship at its heart, which I'm not going to say is terrible because it, it absolutely works for what it is, but I have butter knives in the drawer with more edge than this movie has. The sexy stuff sucks. The kills suck. The killer sucks. The horror content in general sucks. On the plus side, the cinematography is accomplished. The humor works. And, and also, by the way, the as Rich was talking about, yeah, the little visual editing stuff. I really like the credits rolling on the sky at the end of the movie. That always stood out to me. Putting that aside, though, the horror content, the humor. Well, okay, the humor works about half the time. And I think the, the cast is game. And they're mostly quite talented and accomplished, as we talked about earlier. And there's also a bitter, a bittersweet magic in the movie's time traveling mother daughter relationship story. All of that being said, if you don't deliver the goods as a slasher movie, for me, you're not going to have a deep run in this tournament. And I don't think this movie even—it's probably bottom three 
for for horror content in the whole tournament. And that means it's DOA for me. This is I'm I'm gonna talk out of my ass for a second because this just dawned on me while you were talking, but I almost feel like the problem with Final Girls is that it it just came out ten to twenty years too late. Hmm. Like it's it is referenced like it, it, the characters are sort of referencing this time period that you feel I feel like the director didn't really know or love slasher films like I don't know it's not even like the the sort of cynical 90s sense sensibility to it it's more like the the juxtaposition of the time periods isn't quite right. Because I agree. Look, I I like the movie more than you do, John. I think some of the some of the visuals I think are actually quite striking. One of the things that I have come to appreciate more and more as as we've dug into this subgenre are films that center around different relationships. And I'm not sure there's another film in the competition that centers on a on a mother daughter relationship like this. And so that is something that sort of stands out to me, and it is well performed. You're right about half the jokes land. And yeah, the horror content is it it just it almost feels like they they have nothing new to say about the slasher genre that wasn't said better or differently or or you know in Scream or Behind the Mask. I mean, that's kind of what I come back to with Behind the Mask is that feels like there is stuff in there that I haven't really seen or thought about before. It has a different take on it. And I is for everything that Final Girls does well, there's nothing in it that's surprising. My my true my true reaction to it the first time I saw it, I remember seeing the trailer and thinking, Jesus, that looks awesome. It was one of those things where like as soon as it popped up on demand, you know, I smoked a bowl and 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 put that on. And when it was over, I was like, eh? Like there's that expression in movie making, lightning in a bottle, where you just everything works, the script, the directing, the cast, the production design, the costumes, you know, just everything contributes. Aliens, Robocop, these are old school examples, I know, but for me, those are those are films that just somehow everybody hit it out of the park. This is a movie where if if you had had that, if you'd achieved that with the basic DNA, this movie would have been a classic. But I think yeah, I- you fucked it up on eight out of 10. Yeah. I, I will agree that like, it feels like a, it feels like a classic that like missed the mark. Like it missed its, it yep. missed its opportunity. And like, I mean like, uh, look, I think all your guys points are, are well taken. I can tell you which film I, I, I enjoyed watching more. I cannot argue that final girls is a better horror film. It's just not, but I do think that the, the writing and the filmmaking is, is generally better across the board. And like, you know, I can, I can see the, obviously the, the writing on the walls is favoring behind the mask and should behind the mask advance in this competition. I guess just like my, my bigger problem with behind the mask is that, well, I don't know about bigger, but like one of the problems with behind the mask is it, it, it actually made me angry as I was watching it Hmm. because as we get back to these questions of like, what is, and like, is not a, a, a slasher film, in this genre, and like I started thinking about, it, I was like, I was like, well, it's like this is basically like I liked like Behind the Mask better when it was repurposed as like Creep, and Creep Two, 
you know, I even think that there's like a, an argument to be made that like if you're talking about like this type of like the meta slasher, like why doesn't like Cabin in the Woods count? Or if you want to call Cabin in the Woods like a, a monster movie or or something else of that nature, like why wouldn't like Tucker and Dale be like a superior film to, to this? Like to me, like those are better made movies with more like well thought out relationships than than this was. This I don't know why I don't know what like the problem I tried to make it through Tucker and Dale twice and I, I could not get into it. So that's what why it's not in the competition. Fuck, well why didn't you guys say anything until now? I, oh no, I no no I'm sorry. I would not I would not classify <laughs> Tucker and Dale as a slasher film, but what mm-hmm. the fuck? You couldn't get through it? Why would Tucker and Dale not be a slasher film? That doesn't make any sense. Okay, we're there's getting no, what, what, there's what no slasher. There is a slasher. They kill the slasher in the third act. Like the whole the whole thing is that there is a slasher and that they're being accused of being the slasher. No. Yes, it is. That's the that's the a, entire plot, Vic. No, it's not. That's a that's a uh, that's thin. <laughs> Rich, that's very very thin. Well, we're also running out of time here, so let's let's wrap it up. But a lot of interesting topics here. Maybe at some point I'll try for a third time to make it through Tucker and Dale. But no, no, uh, <laughs> but you you have to come over. You have to come over and watch Tucker and Dale with with friends. Because okay. oh my god, I, I'm ast- I'm astonished. On my my jaw is is agape to hear that. that it was, just felt kind of lame to me. I don't I, know. I, I, I will say that it has it does it does have some of the whatever the the lameness in fin- the in Final Girls DNA is is mm. also in Tucker and Dale. Okay, like there is there is something there's a softness to it. Although I will say, like yeah. Tucker Neal goes there a little more with the with the gore. I, I but, have uh, a problem with yeah, softness. I, I have to say, <laughs> I see I see your argument. Look, I, look, I just like I like we watch a lot of these movies. Like I'm not put off by seeing it like played with in different ways. That's fair. I'm 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 I'm, I'm down for like the look when you want to when you want to cut up someone with a apparently battery operator or gas powered buzzsaw <laughs> in a car. Like I'm down to watch it. And like I'm also like okay if you want to just like focus on the you know the the relationships, but uh but, but yeah anyway, Hallmark I, versus I, high tension. I, I just feel like but I guess like to to bring it back to my original point I think that that it just like annoyed me that like all I saw in Behind the Mask were like better movies that took like these concepts and and, and sort of like and and ran with them so. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't say it's going to be getting a lot of love for me along the way, but hmm. who knows? I could be, I could be reconvinced. I, I like behind the mask a lot more than you do rich. And I think I, I will make a stronger case for it moving forward. Um, I certainly think it's a much meatier meal in terms of the genre than final girls, uh, which yes, admittedly has a strong central relationship but uh, I, I wouldn't have put it in this tournament if it was up to me. So my vote is obviously for Behind the Mask. Rich, where, I, I think I know, but where do you land on this vote? John, there's a saying in Texas where I grew up, uh, dance, with, dance with the one what brought you. Um, so I got to go for Final Girls. I brought, I brought it into this competition. I can't be the one who brings it out. And I do believe you uh, you ranked it very high. Uh, so yes, okay. It's uh, we've got a split vote. This is an exciting finale for tonight's show, Vic. It's time to determine the winner. You know, my father-in-law actually, who is from Texas, told me 
you know, you got to dance with the girl. What brought you? And I was like, Barney, are you a, are you a dancer? And he was like, I think it's just an expression. <laughs> I was, I was vaguely humiliated in front of my father-in-law. I'm just trying to draw out the tension a little bit so that people can really appreciate it. <laughs> I know. I'm I sure everyone's on pins and needles. Like what's Vic going to do? <laughs> Who am I going to vote for? I too want to dance with the girl that brought me. I didn't bring any of the girls. Actually, I think I, Maybe I'm the one who brought uh, Behind the Mask uh, onto this. Anyways, uh, I will say I'm going to cast my vote for Behind the Mask, but I do like Final Girls, and it has a lot to recommend it, but I think it suffers more from unrealized potential uh, in a way where I think Behind the Mask is actually maybe exceeding its grasp a little bit uh, in, in some ways and, and, and falling well short of it in others. But I can see, look... The bottom line with with this, like, if you find the the guy who plays Leslie Vernon annoying, like, yeah, this movie sucks for you. So I'm sorry, Rich, but uh, that's that's where my vote's going. That's all right. It's, it's it's a sound argument. I'm not, I'm not, I'm I'm not hurt. It's all right. It got its moment. All right. I really, I really, I really wanted to hurt you, Rich. Can can we try that again and be upset? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Vic. That's what I wanted. Oh, that's the stuff. <laughs> oh wow! Like normally, it's just me and Vic tangling, but uh, I like it. Let's uh, open some new fronts in this war. Honestly, I'm more upset about Vic's assessment of Tucker and Dale. But, you know, that's the conversation for another day, I guess. <laughs> Well, there will be many other days, but uh, let me give you a, a peek into the next one. Episode three will have Happy Death Day, a number one seed in this same meta genre. It's very much in the vein of the two films we just talked about. Facing Fear Street 78. Is that right? <laughs> I got it right. All right. <laughs> uh, number 16. Yeah. All right, that's going to be fun, folks. That will be fun. And then we also have in the Peak Franchise Division, Child's Play, the original 1988 classic, squaring off against the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 2003. Those are an 8 and a 9 seed. That's going to be interesting. And then we also will have in the Dark Horse category, The Strangers, up against Midnight Meat Train. That's what's in store for you all. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are as well. Gentlemen, say your farewells. It's been a great episode. I've enjoyed sparring with you both. Goodbye. Send more pizza port. <laughs> Send more paramedics. <laughs> exactly where I was going with that, John. I just want to say fuck you both and uh, sleep badly. Adios. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>